please turn with me in your copy of God's Word to Acts 20. Today we'll read verses 22 through 27. We're in the middle of Paul's farewell address to the Ephesian elders. This is the final time they will see him on this side of heaven. He knows that persecution, imprisonment, and death await him. There's, a, there's not going to be a quiet retirement for Paul. He's not going to have the opportunity to return to Ephesus and visit the church in, in a year or so. And so this is his swan song to them. And here's how I wanted to tackle today's passage. And it's by asking you to think about a race. Now, I know that not everyone in here has, has ran a race before. Some of you have. Some of you have not. Some of you uh, are, are weird and enjoy it. Others, you, uh, others of you would, would it would be a nightmare. Um, but I think we all know that a, a race has three parts. There's a start a middle, and an end. Right? There's, there's the start where everyone is lined up, gathered together, anticipating what, what's ahead. Maybe they're nervous. Maybe there's a little bit of dread. And then there's the middle, which I'm going to say is everything that lies between the start and the finish. Right? This is this, the, the set course and the length of this will differ depending on the race. The obstacles will differ depending on the race. But everyone will go from point A to point B. And the set course is between those two points. And then comes the end. The finish line. You cross it and the race is over. You're able to stop and rest and get water or Gatorade or banana to lay on the pavement and finally catch your breath. Those are are the three parts of the race, the start, the course, and the finish. And in a race, we have an illustration of life. My life, your life, our lives have these three parts. There is a definite beginning, the moment of your birth, or if we want to compare this to the Christian life, there's the moment of new birth, regeneration, and then of course, you have the the course that is mapped out before you, your own specific path. And again, the obstacles will differ for each of us, and the difficulty will differ For each of us, for some of you, the course has been smooth and flat and fast. And for others, there have been hills and valleys and pain and difficulty as you continue down your course. And then there's the finish line. What would that be? Well, it would be that taboo topic that we try our best to avoid and not think of or talk about. And then whenever it comes to someone, we're shocked. 
This, of course, would be death. It comes to everyone. Just as every race has a finish line, so our lives have this definite ending. The only exception being, if the Lord Jesus no longer tarries and He returns in power and glory in the midst of our race. That is the only scenario in which we don't cross that finish line of of death. But if He does tarry, and if His return is delayed more than our allotted years... Just like a runner, we will experience the start, the course, and then finally cross the finish line. So if you know your Bibles, you'll recognize that this race theme is something that Paul uses on multiple occasions. He'll write to the Philippians, and he'll tell them to persevere and not grumble and hold fast to the word of life. And he says, so that on the last day, I may be proud that I did not run in vain. I'll be proud of my labor and my striving and my running and my ministry among you. Because it produced such fruit in your lives as being patient and not grumbling and holding fast to God's word. He'll write to the Corinthians and say, don't run aimlessly. Keep running your course so that you might obtain the prize. We'll see him frustrated with the Galatians and the works righteousness that has crept into that church. And he says, you were running so well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? And then, of course, you've got the very end of Paul's life when he's writing to Timothy and he says those well-known Beloved words, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. This image of the Christian life as a race is something we will see over and over and over again in Holy Scripture. And what brings it to my mind today and as I was prepping this week is a statement that Paul makes in verse 24 of Acts 20 where he tells us that his number one goal is finishing the course that he received from the Lord. And if you think about Paul's life and his course, he was born in Tarsus as a Roman citizen. He was well-educated and studied under the best and brightest rabbinical minds at the time. He was a fierce persecutor of the church. He then had his world completely turned upside down on the road to Damascus. And in time, he would go on three separate missionary journeys, planting churches in every city. And now he's closing it out. He's entering the last long straightaway where he can see the finish line, although it's still miles away. And he tells these elders, if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus. That's what he has in focus now that his church planting days 
are over. He can see the finish line, and he just wants to finish well. So what does this mean for us? Well, you have your own race to run. You have a course that has been set before you. And I would remind you of this, and you can take comfort in knowing that the Lord knows what lies ahead for you. He, he knows our lives from beginning to end. There's, there's nothing in your future that will surprise him. There is nothing in your future that is unknown to him. He has set a course for you. And the exhortation we see over and over again in the New Testament is to run your race well. How do we do that? Well, the Apostle Paul sets an example for us. That's the whole reason he's saying these things to these Ephesian elders. He's saying, follow my example. Do as I do. Walk as I walk. Keep to the course the Lord has set before you and finish well like me. What, what I want to do with our time is just to look at several ways in which Paul provides an example for us as we continue down our course so that we too might run the race with endurance that is set before us and finish well. Let's pray. Father God, would you bless the reading and preaching of your word? Would we see in it the good things you would have for us? Father, if there's anything unhelpful or errant that I say, would it be forgotten by your people? But Father, if there is truth, if there is edification, If there's comfort and assurance and exhortation for your people, would we remember it? Would we hear it? And would we respond? I ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're looking at the example that Paul sets for the believer the example he sets for us as we run and inevitably finish our own course. The first thing is obedience to God even when it will be hard and painful. Verse 22, Paul tells them, well, I guess I should read the text before I get into it. (laughs) Let's read the text. Chapter 20, beginning in verse 22. And now behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that affliction, imprisonment, and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, If only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now behold, I know that none of you 
among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom, will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Now I'll get to my first point. Obedience to God, even when it will be hard and painful. In verse 22, Paul is telling them, he says, Behold, I am going to Jerusalem. He's going back to Jerusalem. And we remember that this is the city where the church was birthed. This is the city where the Holy Spirit fell at Pentecost. It was the location of the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15, which we would say, that's our first Presbytery meeting we see. But things quickly turn dangerous for the believers in Jerusalem. I mean, just think all the way back to Acts 4 and everything that follows. There's the execution of Peter. I'm sorry, not Peter. Stephen and James. There's the persecution of Peter and countless others. The hostility that the church is facing from the Jews has made Jerusalem a very dangerous place. The same city that killed the Lord Jesus will do the same to his disciples. So why is Paul going there? He's not being self-destructive. He's not being unwise. He's not being cavalier. The reason he goes, you see it in verse 22, I am constrained by the Spirit. This this word constrain means to, to bind or tie. You can think of someone walking a dog on a leash or maybe a prisoner being led while he's wearing handcuffs. That's what Paul is describing. He's being drawn by the Spirit as if he were bound. God has given him an exceptionally strong sense of compulsion that he has to go quickly and directly to Jerusalem. This isn't some gut feeling. It's not a a hunch. He, He hasn't been turned into some robot that God has put on autopilot and aimed at Jerusalem. Now, Paul knows exactly what he's doing. And he knows that for him to do anything else would just be blatant rebellion and insubordination against the will of God. For Paul not to go to Jerusalem would be like Jonah running from Nineveh. You remember how God tells Jonah to go to Nineveh and preach repentance And what does Jonah do? He gets on a ship and goes in the opposite direction. Paul has been called to return to Jerusalem, and it is just as clear as Jonah's call to Nineveh. But unlike Jonah, Paul is obediently following the leading of the Spirit. Calvin makes a point of application here. He says, quote, 
We should learn from Paul's example not to kick against the Spirit, but to let Him rule us according to His will, as if we were bound to Him, and not so that we have to be dragged along, end quote. I mean, we've all seen someone who's walking a dog who has not been leash trained, and they're walking this way, and the dog is pulling with all their force back the other way. And that's, that's, that's the picture here that Calvin is getting at. Or, or think about a goad. Are you familiar with a goad? A, a, a goad is a, a stick, a pointy stick. If you've got an obstinate bull, you're trying to move from one pasture to another, you go up behind him and just poke him with this stick, and it gets, it gets him to move. And funny enough, Paul, we'll get to this in a few months, Paul is telling the story of his conversion to King Agrippa. This is in Acts 26. And he recounts what happened on the Damascus Road. And he said, I fell to the ground and I heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. What good does it do the bull to kick against the goads? Nothing. He will only experience more pain and annoyance. So in Calvin's comment, we're, we're told to learn from Paul's example and not kick against the Spirit. Let him rule us as if we're bound to him and we aren't those he's just dragging along. So Paul is responding to the will of God with obedience. We see the last half, which is just as important. He's doing so even though it is going to be difficult and painful. In verse 22 and 23, we read, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. And we've seen this already in our study of Acts. Paul had insults thrown in his face and was driven out of Pisidian Antioch. There was an attempted stoning in Iconium. He was actually stoned in in Lystra and uh, he's left an unconscious, bloody mess. He's imprisoned in Philippi and then shares the gospel with the jailer. There's a mob set, a mob that set the city of Thessalonica in an uproar, and they're searching for Paul, and he has to escape by night. There's another mob in Ephesus, and it's so dangerous, the believers would not let Paul go out to speak with them. And now, he's to go back to Jerusalem. And he says, I have no idea what will happen to me there, but it'll probably be more of the same. And aren't there noticeable similarities here between Paul and the Lord? I mean, there are several occasions in the the Synoptic Gospels where Jesus speaks of what will happen once he goes back to Jerusalem. In Mark 10, he says, See, we are going to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. 
and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. Paul has to be experiencing something similar. Following in the footsteps of his master. If that's how they treated the master, then surely that's how they'll treat the servant, which is why he tells them in verse 25, I know that I'm never going to see any of your faces again. There's another passage I wanted to point out here that is just striking. It speaks of the obedience of Christ, and I imagine Paul knew it and probably drew much comfort from it as well. It's from Isaiah 50. This is Isaiah 50, verses 5 and 7. This is the, the, the Lord's obedient servant, which would be the Lord Jesus. The Lord God has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious. I turned not backward. I gave my back to those who strike, and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. But the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint. And I know that I shall not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. Paul's path, his course, what remains of it, is clear. That regardless of what awaits him, he is to set his face like a flint and be led to Jerusalem. So what do we learn from this example? Well, how about obedience to God despite the circumstances? Faithfulness or faithful submission to his word and the drawing of his spirit despite the circumstances. Now, praise the Lord. We do not live in a country where we face the same dangers that Paul would have faced in Jerusalem. Our worst danger here in northeast Mississippi is being socially ostracized. I mean, really. I don't want to be overly dramatic here. We are not facing what Paul faced. But still, it's important for us to remember that whatever the cost, whatever the pain or trouble, it does not absolve us from obedience to the commands of God. We are to remain obedient to Him despite the consequences. That's what we see in our first point. The second example of Paul we see is that this obedience to the will of God was greater than his concern for self. All of these will kind of flow together. What is the thing that drives most all of us most all the time? Our own self-interest. Concern 
for self. How will this benefit me? How will I be cared for? How will that make me feel? How will my needs be met? I naturally, without even trying, seek the situation and path that will be most beneficial and most rewarding to me. Where does water always flow? Downhill. Water always flows downhill, and we naturally move towards that which will benefit self. But here is is Paul in verse 24. And I'll probably, I'll go back to verse 23 and then go into 24. He says, the Holy Spirit testifies to me that in every city that imprisonment and affliction await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself. Now, I want to quickly say that I do not believe that Paul is doing any violence to human beings as image bearers of God. I don't think that that's obviously not his point here. He's not saying that human life is worthless. He's not saying he believes that there is life unworthy of life. Every human life is valuable because every human is an image bearer of God. What Paul is saying, and we're about to get to this, is that there is something that he values more than his life. But before we get there, going back to what Paul was expecting in Jerusalem, we see that Paul is not guarding his life. By him going back to Jerusalem, we see that he's not afraid that whatever lay ahead of him was his calling. Whatever it was, it was what the Lord Jesus had set him aside to do. And he does not view his life as so valuable and precious to him that he would rebel and refuse to continue on the course that the Lord had set for him. He was willing to be poured out as a drink offering. He was able to rejoice in sufferings for the sake of the church, if that be the will of God. And this is exactly what we see in the latter half of verse 24. He says, I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of grace. What was it that mattered most to Paul? Finishing the race. Finishing the course that the Lord set before him. It wasn't his life. It wasn't his comfort. It wasn't his personal happiness. It was his calling. The Lord's specific call on his life. He says, he was testifying to the good news of the grace of God. He was the apostle to the Gentiles. And again, we see his example. I would remind you that each of you have a particular calling that God has ordained for your life. He has set your course before you. And He wills for you to run and obediently follow that course. My prayer is that we, like Paul, would be able to say, 
my treasure, what I value most is finishing the course that you have given me. You know, we're going to sing about this in just a moment in our final hymn. We'll sing the words, Jesus, I my cross have taken all to leave and follow thee. Destitute, despised, forsaken, thou from hence my all shall be. Perish every fond ambition, all I've sought or hoped or known. Yet how rich is my condition. God and heaven are still my own. Don't be so gripped by the desire to live that you're unable to finish the race and complete the task the Lord has given you. Third thing, Paul's obedience in finishing his course has led to a clear conscience. Paul's course was to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And that's exactly what he did. In verse 26, we read, Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Paul is confident about going to Jerusalem. He's confident they will never see his face again. And he is confident that he'd done all he'd been given to do in Ephesus. And so he can say, My conscience is clear. I held nothing back. I declared to you the whole counsel of God, which is the entirety of God's redemptive plan that we see unfolded in Scripture. Dr. Derek Thomas, in a sermon, tells why Paul has a clear conscience leaving the Ephesians. And he says this, The focus of Paul's ministry had been the plan and purposes of God. It hadn't been about himself. It hadn't been about how great a preacher he was, or how great a church planter he was, or how great an evangelist he was. It wasn't about giving the numbers of converts that he had had. It wasn't about him. The focus of his ministry had been about the purposes and the plans of Almighty God. That plan that is revealed in Genesis 3.15, that the seed of the woman will crush the head of Satan. That God is determined to save a people for himself. That out of this sin-cursed, sin-ravaged world, God intends to gather a people to save them through the blood of Jesus Christ, his only Son. And Paul had expounded again and again and again through the passages of the Old Testament all those things concerning Christ, concerning the purpose and plan of God. That's what he declared to them. And so he can say, my conscience is clear. Christian, your obedience to your heavenly Father, even when it is hard and painful, your submission to his plan and will over your own desires and comforts, 
You are finishing the course that He has set before you will lead to a clear conscience. Now, I'm not talking about how you're saved. I'm not talking about how you're made right with God. Don't go there. This example is for believers. For those who have received Christ and are resting upon Him alone for salvation. If that is you, there is great comfort and assurance and peace of conscience when we don't pull like a dog on a leash or kick against the goats, but simply humbly submit to His will and follow His lead. I read something this morning in the Heidelberg Catechism. And there's a statement uh, the authors make, and they say, would you help everyone to carry out his or her office and calling just as willingly and faithfully as the angels in heaven. That was Paul's desire, and it should be ours as well. So this is Paul finishing his race with no regrets, with no turmoil of soul. This is how he can say those words, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Let's pray. Father God, as we are talking about the race and the course you've set before us and running it well, I pray that as we leave this place, we would remember the words of the writer of Hebrews, who in chapter 12 wrote, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Holy Spirit, would you raise our chins, lift our eyes, that we might look to Jesus, who is the founder and perfecter of our faith, who ran the race that was set before him, who completed the task he covenanted to do with the Father before the foundation of the world. He is our strength and our hope and our ultimate example and our most loving friend. He is our righteousness and our peace and our acceptance before a holy God. Would we press on, remembering that we are forever indelibly united by faith to him? And would that enable us to hurry on towards the finish line, overcoming any hindrance that would impede or delay us on our course? 
We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.